Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. And friends, we are on episode three of a new series, uh, which is about Christian nationalism. What is it? How long have we had it? What is its background? You know, all of those kind of questions. So we have already kind of done a quick overview episode, and then our second episode was on the biblical perspective of Christian nationalism. And so where are we heading to today? Well, uh, like you said, last time we took a look at the witness, both of the Hebrew scriptures and of the New Testament, and I, I think it's it's fair to say as a summary um, the New Testament certainly assumes Christian Christians were not in the position of power. They were on the underside in the uh, empire uh, in, in the, the time of Jesus and the early church. And we saw that the, the Old Testament, the, the story of Israel, sometimes has something that looked like a theocracy, but they also had times where they were living under the rule of uh, foreign domination, foreign empires, and things like that, and did not have political power. And that even when there was uh, something like a theocracy with uh, a nation that had uh, the laws that were sacred laws or holy laws or things like that, there was also interesting, curious wiggle room for foreigners, outsiders, and those who didn't share the faith of Israel um, that made it clear that, like, that God was God of all the world uh, and not that only God cared about one nationality or one people. Um, so today we're going to be looking at how does the rest of say the last 2000 years of history um what what is what is christianity's relationship with political power and with nationalism what does that look like in different times and different places once we leave the new testament era uh and look at uh you know the last 20 centuries so i mean that's a long long swath of time where, where are some places we should start that would be relevant i think we need to start at the beginning at, at, at what Fräulein Maria suggests in The Sound of Music, right? Very good place to start. So, all right. So after the end of the first century, let's imagine they've just, you know, finished the, the, the last page of the New Testament. That's done and off to the printers. Um, still, for a, a good while, Christianity still operated sort of as this minority report, you know, small sect, you know, within the empire, pretty frequently getting into trouble. But what, what did that mean for how those early Christians in the first several centuries related to uh, national power or, or political power? Well, I mean, for the first couple of centuries, Christians were very much an underground movement. They didn't, they weren't super public. Uh, depending on who was emperor of Rome, they were persecuted, like they were killed and executed. Uh, so they had very good reason to not be super public but yet because of the martyrs that was often how they became known to other people right because it's hard to evangelize when you are being all secretive but when you're willing to die for your beliefs it's going to make people interested like what is it about this faith that all of my neighbors are willing to die instead of renouncing their faith. Um, so Christianity spread quite a bit during these first couple of centuries while they're an underground movement. 
Yeah. And I think it's it's worth noting that part of the appeal seems to have been, too, in the, in the early Christian movement, that um, it was inclusive of people who've been previously treated like they didn't matter. I mean, the, the empire clearly respected, uh, you know, the, the, the citizenry of Rome. But if you were enslaved, if you were not a citizen, if you were one of the conquered people, for that matter, if you were a woman, um, th- there are all sorts of ways you were second class or below in the Roman scheme of things. And it certainly seems like the early church had this surprising inclusivity that rich and poor and Jew and Gentile, I mean, to borrow Paul's language in Galatians, were included and treated like they all mattered. And in fact, we have an, a strong record both in the New Testament and the early uh, post-apostolic era of women as leaders in congregations, um, even though we maybe hadn't quite uh, firmed up official titles like bishops or pastors quite in the way they're codified or made offices now, who are serving in those kinds of ways. And that inclusivity and that anybody from anywhere could belong and could meaningfully uh, be a part of the, the followers of Jesus, that seemed to be part of our early appeal. And then everything changed. When the Roman emperor became Christian. Yeah, and maybe we should say a little bit b- before we get to Constantine's move uh, in what around the year 325 or 3 something, um, that in as part of that early Christian witness in those first couple of centuries, there was a there are a number of really strong early voices saying Christians were not meant to be um part of a a political domination system. Um, There's uh, voices like Tertullian who says, when Jesus disarmed Peter in the garden, he disarmed every Christian forever. I mean, like that was like the standard position of the first 300 years of Christians are not meant to take up uh, weaponry in the name of the empire. And again, that's all they could imagine was the the empire um, and that we weren't supposed to use the tools of political power or military power to dominate other people. You also get voices like the early apostolic witness, uh, we call it the epistle to Diognetus now, uh, and he says something like, um, Christians are found in every country, in every language, in every nation, and because of that, they can be at home anywhere in the world, but also are home nowhere. We're like resident aliens and immigrants everywhere we go, and we don't give our allegiance to any one nation because we're part of it, and he uses that language from the New Testament. It's like our, our citizenship, our commonwealth is in heaven, and therefore, we don't give our allegiance to the empire or to any one nation or language, and that we see people from every nation, every background as potential kinfolk to us. Um, and we don't kill to get our way, but we are willing to lay down our lives uh, for the sake of Jesus. So like, just like you said earlier, Sarah, the, the early Christians made a stir, not because we were willing to kill for the sake of getting power, but because we were willing to lay down our lives for the sake of being witness to Jesus. And that certainly grabbed people's attention. Um, and that it was an early strong choice in the you know, commitment in the early church. We were not part of the, the nationalistic scene. But then, as you say, in somewhere in the early fourth century, uh, the emperor Constantine changes things. What, what's, what's the change? How does that make a difference? So he, he um, became Christian and suddenly it became a way to curry favor with the emperor. So everyone in his court became Christian and it had this trickle down effect where it was profitable to be Christian. And this isn't to say that everyone was a devout believing Christian. It was 
that everybody paid lip service. Yeah. So you suddenly had almost like different levels of Christianity. You had like <laughs> the actual true believers who um, continued to worship and to be faithful and to study and, you know, to do the things that God is calling them to do. But then you also have people who are just saying that they're Christian so that they can make business deals so that they can gain favor with the emperor or, you know, somebody in the emperor's court. Um, there suddenly became like different levels of Christianity yeah. and faithfulness. Yeah. Um, and, but it also just completely restructured the Christian faith, because suddenly it's no longer this minority persecuted group that's underground, but it's suddenly the state religion and it is the majority and it is the group that is in power and has the ability to persecute other faith traditions. And I, I, I think it's helpful the way you noted there that while it wasn't exactly overnight, a pretty big watershed happens not only with Constantine's conversion, uh, but um, and at that point it becomes politically or financially expedient to be a Christian. And then uh, maybe a generation later, Theodosius II, a later emperor, does make Christianity the official religion of the empire. And at that point, it's now not just uh, indifferent or neutral to be a Christian or a little bit positive. It's if you want to be a part of the empire, you must be, you know, or to be a full participant. Now this is the official state religion uh, and the state is an empire. And it's probably also worth noting too, that Constantine kind of co-opted the language or imagery of symbolism in his rise to power too. There's that famous story about uh, Constantine before the big battle of the Milvian bridge saying he had a dream where he saw the Cairo symbol and a voice saying, by this sign, you will conquer. And again, it's the sort of imagery of using the cross, using Christian imagery to say, God has endorsed me in my military victory in my quest for political conquest. And at, again, in, in the early centuries, Christians would have said, that's it. No, that's not how it works. Our, our kingdom, our, our citizenship is in heaven. We don't do that. But by the time Constantine comes around, he's made it fashionable and, and palatable to say these things that would have seen unthinkable being associated with Christianity a generation or a century before now are, well, I guess it's okay. And I guess we can conquer with the cross on our shields. And I guess we can kill people in the name of Jesus. Um, and then it becomes, like you say, to be a good citizen of the empire meant to be a good Christian uh, or to be nominally a Christian. Yeah. And so I think if you look at, especially uh, the political landscape of Europe, from Constantine to even today, you kind of see this overarching theme of holy war, holy conquest as nations all sort of claim Christianity, or at least their flavor of Christianity as the state religion. Right. And so this is going to have um, interesting effects as uh, Christian nations is pitted against Christian nation, but it's also um, especially relevant when you look at the Crusades, where suddenly it is popular in Europe to raise a Christian army and to go to the Holy Land and have this war against the Muslim state there 
to try to gain control over like Jerusalem or Israel or or wherever they were happening to try to conquer. Right, right, right. And that notion too of once it became uh, politically or financially convenient to be nominally a Christian, and that meant like everybody had some like affiliation with Christianity, even if it, it didn't make a difference in your life, you'd get these revival moments from movements from time to time of some people saying well we need to have people who are really really dedicated at being christian again and you get things like the monastic movements that spin out of that you know in in a culture where everybody is theoretically a christian it feels like well nobody takes very seriously so you get these movements like benedict or like francis or those other movements that we call monasticism were sort of people trying to uh call people back to a deeper engagement with their christian faith so again like if, if you look at the last 2000 years and wonder, how did we end, end up in, inventing things like monks and nuns and things like that? Well, in a way, once you have a culture where everybody gets baptized as soon as you're born and it doesn't have to mean anything in your life, you're just nominally a Christian because we have a state r- religion. There were people who said, but we, we, need, we need to take it more seriously, you know, like in the old days. And then you create those sort of sub movements. And over a thousand years of that, you end up with sort of a stratified, like you said, classes of Christians, the, you know, the really diehard people who took it seriously. And then there was kind of this other message, but you don't really have to take it seriously. You could just be a regular Christian, uh, but the people who really take it seriously, you become a monk or a nun. And then you get sort of these spiritual classes of who's the really, really spiritual, who are doing extra good works. And then the, you know, poor normal nominal schlub, you know, schlubs or something like that. And that, that again, makes sense of an awful lot of European history. Well, this time you also have conversion through threats, right? Um, right, being killed, you know, and so then you're you're creating more Christians not because they actually believe in the faith, um, but because they don't want to die, right? And again, once you've married, you know, uh, the power of the state, when basically what what a government's power is is the power to threaten or kill people who they deem you know an enemy. Uh, once you've wedded that to a a religion, it becomes a crime to not have the right religion. And so the, it, it it almost feels terribly inevitable that after Constantine, situations like that were going to arise, that you'd have forced conversions or everybody in our country has to be a Christian because that's our official policy, or you're a second class citizen, or we can, you know, kick you out if you become, if we think that you're dangerous or you, or, or you are dangerous because you don't share our faith, that kind of thing. And for a while, even after the collapse of the the proper Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire, you would have sort of these conglomerations of things that were, you know, sometimes they called it the Holy Roman Empire, you know, which is basically Germany or Germany and France and a couple, but like, again, the idea of we're multiple ethnic groups, but united by political power and Christianity. And then once the, the Reformation comes on the scene and there's different flavors of Christianity, Uh, You might have hoped that would be uh, a a change in all that, but instead you ended up now with a different kind of political church violence Mm -hmm. of a whole state that declared itself Roman Catholic and a whole state that declared itself Protestant. And then you end up fighting and, you know, fighting with each other. That's where you get things like the Hundred Years War, where it was, you know, uh, one one nation squabbling against another over what the official right religion, you know, what which kind of Christianity we were going to make the official state religion. Or even the horrible mess that was Tudor England, right? Like you would get a new king or queen and that king or queen would be either Protestant or Roman Catholic. And whichever one they were, 
they were going to execute people of the other faith tradition. Right. Right. So suddenly it's illegal to be, you know, Roman Catholic because Edward is king and then his sister Mary's queen. And suddenly it's illegal to be Protestant. And like, you know, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And again, all of that kind of has a terrible logic that flows from once you make the move of saying there is an official state religion, you open the door toward then is it a crime not to adhere properly to the official state religion? Um, and certainly a lot of Christian history is borne witness to once we once you get folks nominally in in the Christian faith in power, it becomes really tempting to start killing people who don't share that faith and don't use that faith as this is the thing that unifies our culture. We talked before about how one of the marks of Christian nationalism or the one of the things that can make it appealing is it's well, we're all the same. We all have this in common. It's one of the things that binds our culture together. And unity can be a lovely thing, but also when it's sort of an enforced homogeneity, um, man, that be, that that means you end up having to execute or jail or punish people who don't share your exact faith. And at least for the particularities of the Christian faith, it sure seems like that don't sound like Jesus. <laughs> and I think like this is the particular challenge that we run into as people who are from the Christian faith in particular. That it's because the particularities of Jesus don't see i mean jesus doesn't go around killing people who don't agree with him jesus goes around um speaking truthfully what he has to say and being willing to be vulnerable when others don't agree with him but you don't find jesus you know using the power of the state or the empire to enforce his way of doing things and like this is part of the inherent contradiction in so much of what we call christian history i think now we've we've traced an awful lot of European history here, um, but we've said before that we also need to take a look at what this has looked like in our own backyard in our own country's history. And we said, I think in the last episode, we we gave a nod that officially um, American historical founding documents made sure to say there would be freedom of religion. It's guaranteed in the Bill of Rights as that there would not be an established uh, official state church. Um, but we've wrestled with our own challenges about what Christian nationalism or Christianity looks like when it's wedded to political power, even if it didn't have the, the imprimatur of being the official state church. What are some ways in American history that's something that's shown up? Well, so originally white Europeans came over to America to escape religious persecution. Right. So they, came, so they came here looking for religious freedom. But then as soon as they felt like they had a chunk of territory and had power and authority, they would often try to make people conform, like new immigrants who were trying to move into their area, conform to their religious ideals and beliefs. And so the first a couple of decades was also kind of messy over here because people were trying to get other people to conform to their religious ideals and beliefs. Right. Um, but then our founding fathers were largely either atheists or deists. So they had the framework that God is a, is more like a clockmaker that God created the world and then just kind of became very hands off. Um, so most of them were not what we would consider today, like, you know, Methodists or Lutherans or even Roman Catholics, like the, that mainline Christian belief system in, in, in God. Um, so they included that religious freedom. And, um, but for, for most of the American history, 
the biggest religious group is Christianity, sure. either Roman Catholic or Protestant or them combined. Like, so that has been the loudest voice in America. Sure. And it certainly seems like even in our founding documents, there was uh, an awareness, sometimes the most they can call it is providence, but there is this sense of a divine hand guiding or governing so that you do get the sense in the founding fathers writing, you know, that they were convinced that whatever God was or whatever providence looked like, God had arranged for the colonization of the Americas. And that often meant also God had endorsed the extermination of the indigenous peoples who lived here or the pushing off of their land, because at least we were people who believed in God. We might, you know, bicker about sacraments or uh vestments or or things like that but we all kind of were on the same team there and who knew about those native americans and about what they thought so like there there was sort of a uh if you're in the club like us all right we can have some minor differences but whatever providence is it's allowed us to be here and providence was helped us win the revolutionary war and providence has guided us to be allowed to conquer other peoples here that maybe it may be worth naming too that even though the founding of the United States didn't come with a state church. It did come with the legacy that came over from Europe of what's sometimes called the doctrine of discovery um, that for the last 500 years, Christians have had to, re- to, to wrestle with. Once the, once the quote unquote discovery of the new world happened by European explorers and colonizers, part of the way that the European uh, colonizers and their governments dealt with the existence of the Americas was official church policy. And this came out particularly out of the Roman Catholic tradition, but Protestants sort of adhered to it awfully easily of anybody that we find in other lands, as long as they're not Christian, you can conquer them, take them over because Mm -hmm. that will allow us to Christianize them. And anything that you do to defeat them militarily is okay because you're defeating pagans. And then that allows other people to come in and share the gospel with them. And that very easily became European people had the rights to conquer all of the continent of North America and South America as well, because we were coming in the name of, at most we might say providence, but still that sense of because God had authorized it. So even if it wasn't made the official state church, man, that carried an undercurrent that allowed us to conquer as much as we wanted because the people who were here, I guess, didn't count. Well, then you had the whole idea of manifest destiny as, you know, as we move west, as we continue to move past the Appalachia Mountains and move past the Mississippi River, you know, that's all based on, you know, this is God's divine plan for right. for America is that we right. need to move west. And like, you, as you said, Steve, you know, we have to conquer um, Native peoples in, the, in that process. That's what we do. Right. And what what I guess scares me is how easily uh, ordinary church folks just sort of went along with, yeah, that's how Mm -hmm. it is, uh, because there's this, uh, clearly clearly we won the the Revolutionary War, that must have been God's hand governing us, and therefore, I guess God has given us this whole land for us forever. Again, that that it's it's really easy to see that logical jump the same way you can see once Constantine says, maybe we don't have to kill Christians, I can be one, how easily you move from that to, 
And now everybody's a Christian at the point of a sword, you know? Um, And man, you can see how easily those logical moves made, but how tragic the consequences of that are. And it seems again to me like in hindsight, we can look back and go, wait a second, this doesn't feel very Jesus, right? Where, where on earth do you get the sense from Jesus that it's okay to go kill people who are already living on land um, because you want it. Um, But once you've decided uh, that you are authorized and whatever is in the best interest of your nation is also what God is endorsing. Yeah. Yeah. If you can make a case that it's in the national interest. Now you've just said you've made a case why God backs it. This, this reminds me too of the way that in the civil war era, you get different voices wrestling with where Providence was and all that. And like to read the mm-hmm. speeches of leaders, both of the union and the Confederacy, um, you know, you, you get the sense from Lincoln from time to time in his speeches at the time of that whatever providence was, God was guiding history, but that God might reserve the right that, you know, for every uh, every drop of blood that the slave drivers whip, you know, drew might have to be paid back in blood on the battlefield. But he still had the sense of like that God was guiding one nation to win over the other. And you had people on in the in the Confederacy making the exact same claim on their side that God was on their side. Uh, and that therefore they were destined to win or that they should assume that God was backing them. And again, what seems so scary to me is how two completely opposed sides who had taken very, very different stances, not only on national unity, but on slavery, um, were convinced that God was on their side. I don't know if if either of you have read that famous piece by Mark Twain called The War Prayer, Um, but it's a sort of a story that where he imagines the, the, uh, preacher in some congregation, you know, like asking God's blessing and the, the, the prayer becomes increasingly bloody about, you know, God, we ask you to endorse the torture and killing of our enemies. And, you know, again, like all in the sweet name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like it was meant to be shocking that when you read this, you'd go, oh my goodness, how could we possibly think this is what God really desires? And yet how easily folks in the name of Jesus said we were, we were compelled to kill the bad guys because God was on our nation's side and not somebody else's side. I've always been a little bit fascinated, fascinated seeing how Christians in the South during um, slavery bended and twisted Christianity Mm -hmm. to keep slaves in line. Sure. Um, Because like we can, see from like old bulletins and old sermon notes that the sermons preached in churches that allowed for the slaves to be in part of the congregation to hear the message always made sure to preach like you know not on the exodus not on anything that could hint at liberation or freedom but rather the text that seem to endorse slavery so that slaves and slave owners would hear very specific narratives that would keep slavery part of the institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, like in hindsight, it's like, oh my goodness, how could people not have known? Um, And to me, this is a constant warning about how dangerous it is when I fool myself into thinking, I'm just going to the Bible for answers when really I've got a preconceived outcome I want to be true. And that becomes the filter through which I read the scriptures and man, how, how uh, dangerous and insidious Mm -hmm. and and difficult that can be. And how, again, we need one another to help keep us honest and be like, wait a second. If there's, if there's a place where I'm um, 
if there's a place where where I'm fudging it or where I'm um, uh, uh, not not in line with Jesus, that I need other people to help me point out the places that I'm not getting it or where I'm reading things only in my own best interest. Maybe we should also note too, um, moving a little f- further forward in history, um, that the way. Christianity uh, had been used in the 20th century uh, to endorse things. Um, it was it was Christianity that was sort of uh, co-opted in the in the Second World War in Hitler's rise to power when the church got co-opted in Germany. Um, and at the same time, it was Christianity that was backed in the Cold War of it's it's us Christians against the communists. And again, uh, Americans found themselves on different sides of those conversations, right? You know, in 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 World War II, it was us saying, "No, Hitler, you're not allowed to co-opt the church," you know, and try and take over the world. But we were also the ones saying Christianity needs to be the the, the voice that's fighting against godless communism in uh, not just the Cold War, but all sorts of wars that were fought during the second half of the 20th century in the name of uh, fighting communism, whether it was Korea or or Vietnam, places like that. Remind me, Steve was was there a state church in Germany at the time of World War II? Yeah, uh, from what I from what I recall, um, in you know in in Germany, coming out of honestly coming out of uh, the 16th century and the Hundred Years' War and all that, sort of you landed with in Germany, you could be. Uh, uh, Catholic, you could be what they would call evangelic uh, or you know Lutheran, basically Protestant. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when uh, Hitler comes to power, he eventually made uh, the the state church um, uh, swear fealty to him. You know that like that basically the church had to um, officially go on record saying they supported not only changes to church practice about who couldn't who could or couldn't serve as a pastor, what the church officially taught, and that all sort of got in line with the Aryan nationalism of, of Hitler. And then you had underground movements like the confessing church, uh, like uh, movements like Karl Barth's and Switzerland or, or Bonhoeffer's movement as well that resisted that, but that meant they had to basically go at odds with the official state church and what the official state church required of them. Um, and so they, they sort of went underground again. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a co-opting of the official um, uh, church structure that was there. And so that's really one of the major dangers of having a, a state church, quote unquote, because like you said, there was a couple of different denominations going mm-hmm. in Germany at the time. But when you have a state church and then whoever becomes your state leader, in this case, Hitler, can then basically take over that church and make it run however he or she wants. Right, right, right. And to me, this is one of those places where... Um, I, I think I, we've talked before in different episodes or different series before about the the role in ancient Israel of, of the prophets as people who didn't have political power, but were sort of a check on political power and were able to tell the truth to whoever happened to be the king or for that matter, whoever was the the you know high priest at the time and say, this is not right. Something you know is rotten in Denmark, so to speak. Um, and that at its best, I think the church is is called to be a voice kind of like that, that is not vested in one one political regime or another being in charge but being able to stand outside of it and to offer critique to it and to me that and again this may be me as an american with the official language of separation of church and state sort of in my history but it seems to me like that's a role that we need in a society somebody to stand outside where it's not in your vested interest and to be able to say when the emperor is wearing no clothes and not to have the fear of i'll lose money or power or status if we because I mean, I'm, not, I'm not wedded to a political political party or something like that. 
this, this might be a tangent, but um, something you said, Steve, reminded me, like, we, we don't have an official religion here in the U.S. We have um, the separation of church and states. But I have certainly served in places where separation of church and state meant that I couldn't say anything that could be taken politically, mm-hmm. which meant including I couldn't say things that I thought were very gospel, very Jesus centric. Yeah. But mm-hmm. since it went against the major political party of the area, I couldn't say it, sure. not without having my job being threatened. Sure, sure. And I think this is one of those places where uh, it's almost like no matter how Christians set up the arrangement between the the official church and official political arrangement, there's going to be some set of problems. We just sort of have to choose how we deal with the particular set of problems we have. So in a country that officially has no established state church, you have to figure out where are the lines between what looks like an official endorsement of religion by the state and what looks like an official endorsement of a political policy by a religious figure. And we have to do that kind of dance or say things and know that if it upsets people, yet where, what are the consequences of that? Um, and the flip side, obviously, there's plenty of dangers when you have a state church of it can be co-opted very easily. Like, as you mentioned, uh, Erica, if, if you got a state church in Germany and Hitler comes to power in Germany, real easy to see how the, you know, the, the whole church gets co-opted to support Nazism. And maybe one of the questions we'll have to look at in our next episode is we take a look at what is Christian practice and Christian nationalism look like in 21st century America? And how do Christians who want to avoid the worst of that navigate their faith that's one of the thorny things we have to deal with how do we speak meaningfully about the world and the culture in which we live without making it sound like we're wedded to a particular political party all the time but also how do we avoid we can only say spiritual things because we're religious people and we can't say anything that makes any practical difference in anybody's life that also seems like a distortion of christianity so maybe that's a place actually for us to stick a pin in the conversation and say we, we've sort of done a pretty broad swath of ancient Christian history, medieval history, and more recent era, both in America and in the world, and places where Christian nationalism has gone really, really dangerously wrong. Uh, so there's certainly reason for us to continue to be nervous about it. But that brings us to our next episode next time. How do we, how do we uh, engage this, this reality in the times and culture in which we live? Fair enough? Fair enough. Yep. Well, then join us next time for more conversation here on this important topic here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. This is-